Good morning. Seven deadly sins. The ground on which every other sin grows. Not exactly as an uplifting series as Pastor Tim would say, this is one of those messages that's called Operation Crowd Reduction. Right? Last week we talked about pride. Many theologians would tell us that pride is the granddaddy of all other sins. It is the first sin, the sin of Satan who wanted to be God. In most of the earliest lists of the seven deadly sins, it's interesting. There is another sin that comes in a close second. And it may not be what we would think. In our culture, in our day, we're tempted to think of things like greed, the wolf of Wall Street. Or lust. I don't know, pick a commercial, any commercial, and you'll see it. But neither of those are the second sin. We say, I envy you. And we make it a fairly innocuous statement. We don't mean much by it. There's an interesting quote. Larry King in 2002 was interviewing the Irish rock star Bono. And Bono was talking about success. And this is what he said. He says, Ireland has a very different attitude to success than a lot of places. Certainly than over here in the United States. In the United States, you look at a guy that lives in a mansion on the hill and you think, you know, one day, if I work really hard, I could live in that mansion. In Ireland, people look up at that guy in the mansion on the hill and go, one day, I'm going to get that. And he says something disparaging about his parentage. That's envy. Envy is the second sin, if you will. Why second? Well, to start, if pride, if Satan's pride is literally the first sin, envy is actually the second that we see. Actually, it's the first human sin recorded in the Bible. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see what I mean. We call envy the green-eyed monster. It's the monster within us all. It's the jekyll to our hide, right? Or the hide to our jekyll. Sorry, I got it wrong. The second sin. Perhaps it's the first in many of our hearts. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit was of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Skip over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, very quickly. And what we're going to see is the very second sin 
is also related to envy. Chapter 4, verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. On Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out, into, out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we consider the sin of envy, I pray that you would show your truth that my words would be what you would have for us to hear, that we would see the realities of, of envy, that we would understand what it does to us and how to face it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Envy is a challenge from the very start of the Bible. The very first human sin involves envy. What does the serpent use? Envy. You wanted to be what God is? What he's like? You want to know stuff? Envy. Cain murders Abel. Why? Because he's envious of Abel's relationship with God. Envy is right there in the very beginning. The first human sins. What is envy anyway? We often use it interchangeably with jealousy, and they're related, but they're not exactly the same. You see, envy is this feeling of sadness or unhappiness at the prosperity or blessing of someone else. Envy is oriented towards others and the things that they have, not the things you have. Jealousy is about the things that I have, right? It's about the stuff or the people I have or I'm in connection with. And jealousy can be good or bad. God is a jealous God, we're told. We can be jealous for our reputation in a positive way or a negative way. We can be jealous toward our spouse or maybe even the affections of our children in a positive way or in a negative way. So jealousy is a little bit different, but they're related. Often, the same word can be used in Scripture. But there's something that's very interesting about envy. If we think about the other six of the seven deadly sins, they all have what I would call an upside. Now think about this. Pride, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, sloth. All of these give us pleasure, at least for a moment. 
Now, they're going to ask for more than we want to pay. They can't deliver on what they promise. This is absolutely true. But there is a pleasure involved. With envy, is there really any pleasure to be found? No. Envy grabs a hold of us and makes us feel bad. There's only sorrow and pain involved with envy. We can't even convince ourselves that it's positive. Envy is, at its heart, the most self-destructive and clearly self-destructive sin we find. Because we can't even pretend that envy is good for us. We might want others to envy us, but we certainly don't want to be in a place where we are envying. Second, envy is everywhere. It is, in no small part, what marketers use to get us to buy anything. You know, the stuff that they want to sell us that we know we don't need. In today's world, it's very clear that many of us buy cars or homes or wear the right brand of clothing, or befriend the right people, not because we particularly want that thing or like those people, but because we want to be like them. We want others to envy us. We envy the rich and the powerful and the famous and feel that if we could just have a bit more, if we could just make those people envy us, then everything would be better. We'd, want, we'd get that house on the hill and the others would envy us not the other way around. Scripture is full of stories of envy, right? We've already seen two, but Jacob envies Esau's birthright. Joseph's brothers envy his position and sell him into slavery. Saul envies David and chaos in, consumes the kingdom. I find it interesting that Jonathan, the one who should envy David, right? Because he's supposed to get the throne, doesn't. David in the Psalms, read David's Psalms, regularly envies the wicked. Why are they prospering, right? Peter, at one point, envies John. Lord, what about him? The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees envy the power and the popularity of Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira envy the praise from the church that others are getting, and so they seek to get praise of their own through deceit. And those are just a few of the stories that I thought of off the top of my head. The stories of envy in the Bible never turn out well for the person who's doing the envying. But lest you think this is simply a Bible thing... It's not. I looked around for quotes on envy, and it's amazing the amount that you can find. All kinds of quotes from decidedly non-Christian sources in some cases. I found one uh, Spanish proverb says, envy is thin because it bites but never eats. Heraclitus, ancient Greek philosopher, said, our envy always lasts longer than the happiness of those we envy. Here's one. This is a really, really uh, 
authoritative source in some ways actually really is. Success makes you make so many people hate you. I wish it wasn't that way. It would be wonderful to enjoy success without seeing envy in the eyes of those around you. You know who said that? Marilyn Monroe. And there was a whole lot more. And for a long time, like that quote from Bono, Americans seem to have been less likely to be envious of others than a lot of places in the world. But I fear that times are changing and that envy is taking over. I found an article in March of 2014 in the New York Times by Albert Arthur Brooks. And he said, it's safe to conclude as part of this larger article that a national shift toward envy would be toxic for American culture. Unfortunately, such a shift may well be underway given the increasing anxiety about income inequality and rising sympathy for income redistribution. Brooks is an all about economy, okay? According to the data from the General Social Survey, the percentage of Americans who feel strongly that government ought to reduce the income differences between rich and poor is at its highest since the 1970s. In January, 43% of Americans told a Pew Research Center that government should, quote, should do, quote, a lot to reduce the gap between rich and everyone, uh, and everyone else. Why the shift? The root cause of increasing envy is belief that opportunity is on the decline. Right? He goes on to say that people who believe that hard work brings success do not begrudge others their prosperity. But if the game looks rigged, envy and a desire for redistribution will follow. Now, I don't want to get into economic theory, and that's not really the point. My point is, Brooks taps into something here that's important for us to recognize. The culture is shifting. Envy is a bigger deal. It's a real and growing issue in our culture. And even the secular world sees it. And they may see that in, and see envy as the broader result of economics and making it all about money, which is not surprising in a secular context. But the truth is deeper. Look, every religion knows this. I found quotes from the Buddha and Muhammad about envy and staying away from it. But Christianity understands that it goes deeper. Even though we have this problem as Christians, we won't own our envy. Most of us won't. Remember, I envy you. We think it's this small little thing. For some reason, we seem to be willing to admit our other sins. Greed or gluttony, anger or pride. And we don't tend to admit lust, but even sometimes that before envy. We say things like, I'm just so blessed. We spiritualize and compartmentalize. And we aren't honest with ourselves about the envy in our hearts. And here's the thing about sin. Here's the thing about envy in particular, I think. It's sly. It comes in through the side door and sneaks in. And it's like the serpent in Genesis 3. And we don't pay attention to the reality until it's too late. Adam wouldn't own it in Genesis 3 verse 12. He says, the woman you put her, it's her, here, it's her fault. Right? 
Eve would have known it in verse 13. It's the serpent's fault. Cain deflects. Where's Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? And when he's punished, by the way, every time I hear that, I think back to an early 90s movie. And it's funny because in New Jack City, which is not a movie I can recommend, but I did watch when I was way back when in college, that phrase, and my, bro- my brother's keeper, was told over and over again by the drug dealers who were building an empire. And the answer was, yes, I am. Even they knew that it was a bad question to ask. And Cain knows better, but his envy got the better of him. And when he's punished by God, he says, God, it's too much. And he keeps trying to compartmentalize and push it away. We never want to own our envy. But what happens? If we're not honest, God's going to call us out. The question is not whether or not we're going to see the reality of our envy, but whether or not we're going to do it, as they say in the movies, the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is better. Envy is in us. I was thinking through this and I was taking inventory. The reality is I know I envy. I struggle with envy. I envy those whose health is good when I think about the fourth injection I have to give myself in a day. I envy those whose children are all doing well when I think about the fact that I have a child who will never leave my home, never get a driver's license, or marry, or hold a normal job. I envy the person who gets the better project or is more respected by the boss. I envy the house of my friend or the church of a thousand that he has or the cool car that so-and-so has when I think about the 68 Mustang with 351 Cleveland bored out 30,000 and dual holly carbs and five-slot mags and black, and I haven't thought about this at all. (laughs) Envy is subtle. It slides in by the side door, and if we're not careful, we miss it. And the truth is we all deal with it. You know how I know that envy is at work in us all? It's not just my own issues. Part of my job is to look at social media. To be honest, I don't like social media. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. And it's not because I'm spiritual. It's because I'm an introvert. And frankly, it's too much work. But social media thrives on envy. Think about your Facebook feed. And the carefully curated events and pictures and and images. The staged lives that we put on display. But Facebook isn't the worst at this, nor Instagram. I believe Pinterest is the worst when it comes to envy. And I don't just say that because it makes my to-do list around the house longer all the time. Okay? There's a lot of great information there. There's ways to get things done. 
And there's helpful information and I've used it. But what do we see? What do we put there? All the stuff we want. If I could just have that. If I just had fill in the blank, I would be happy. The problem is, it's never enough. And we aren't willing to face the consequences of our envy. Even the most seemingly benign of circumstances, envy always costs us more than we think. Always. First, envy destroys relationships. In the case of Adam and Eve, in chapter 3, verse 16, we see that part of the curse is relational disharmony. I will make, um, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with pain you will give birth to children. Next, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Look, it doesn't matter exactly how we interpret that verse and what that, that exactly means. What we do know is that relational disharmony is, the, is part of the root of the curse, right? We're going to be fighting one another. Relationships are broken. Envy curses our relationships to brokenness, and it's self-perpetuating. Part of the nature of the curse is that it's self-reinforcing. You see that? Envy led to the first murder. In chapter 4, relationships don't get more broken than that. Joseph's brothers were so envious that they sold him. And when they finally met him again and they knew who he was, what happened? They're afraid of what he's going to do. Envy breaks relationships. What does envy do in our own lives? Think about your own relationships. Envy causes splits and quarrels and fights, bitterness and unhappiness... And from the very beginning of the church, the apostles and the early church fathers understood that envy is dangerous. In 1 Corinthians 13.4, Paul says that love doesn't envy. In James 3.14 and 15, he calls envy demonic and connects it directly with selfish ambition. Among the church fathers, the earliest of the influential Pastors and teachers of the church. John Chrysostom says, Envy arms us against one another. We are engaged in making Christ's body a corpse. We devour one another like beasts. Augustine said that envy is a diabolical sin. And Gregory the Great said, From envy are born hatred, calumny. I had to look it up. It means slander. Joy at the neighbor's misfortune and sadness at his prosperity. Think of your own life. How has envy damaged your relationships? How has another's envy toward you done the same? But deeper than just our relationships, envy destroys us. The celebrated Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, Our envy of others devours us most of all. And he's right. And it's a thoroughly biblical statement. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Think about that. Envy destroys us. Doesn't harm the person we envy, not really. 
All sins are self-destructive. But envy is perhaps the most obviously self-destructive. And yet the most common. And part of that curse after that relational disharmony. Think about this. Adam and Eve were told, eat the fruit of that tree and die. And guess what? They did. And in verse 17 of, of 3, we start to see Adam's side of the curse. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. And it goes on. And part of the curse, part of what envy does to us, is it creates a life of toil and pain. And that death part, Setting aside physical death, the real death, the more important death, the spiritual death that they faced was being cut off from God. And that is envy's self-destructive force in its greatest sense because envy creates a barrier between us and God. That's what it does. Genesis 1 tells us we're made in the image of God. Genesis 2 shows us that we're made to be fulfilled in our lives and in communion with one another and with Him. And Genesis 3 shows us the consequences of envy, the destruction of relationships with others, the destruction of our very peace and vitality of our spiritual lives, and it creates barriers to God. What did Adam and Eve do? What was their response to the fall? They clothed themselves hiding from one another and they hid from God. The consequences of the fall, they're kicked out of the garden. What is the garden? The garden was the place they were meant to be in. The place where they would be fulfilled in who they were and be able to commune with God. And the consequence of envy is the barrier goes up And the angel stands with the flaming sword and communion with God is forever changed. Paul in Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, verse 21, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Two basic kinds of sins in this list. One, physical, lust, gluttony. And the second, envy. Verse 20, in the beginning of verse 21, side note, this is like, this passage is proof positive that verse numbers were added later and are not always in the greatest of positions because envy gets put at the beginning of verse 21 when it's clearly part of this longer list. Okay? So we see hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, fun- uh, factions, envy. Those are all related, Right? They're either the consequences of or aspects of envy. And Paul says, live like that, you do not inherit the kingdom. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. Envy disconnects us from God. 
Why? Because envy, like pride, places us in a spot we're not supposed to be. At the center. And John, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, says this. Don't, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the eyes, the I need, it's envy, right? And once we become aware of the realities of envy, what it's about, and how ubiquitous it is, we see its consequences, and we have to figure out, okay, what do I do about this? We have to combat envy, right? Monsters, as we are well aware from fairy tales and from the movies, have to be hunted. You can't let monsters run amok. Somebody is going to get killed. So we can't stand idly by or hide or hope that it goes away. Especially when the monster is within. Because then we can never outrun it. Right, the, the story of Jekyll and Hyde, at the end, he can't control it. And it takes over. And I think that's a warning to us all. So, we have to combat, combat envy. And if we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail. Why? Because it's within. It's the war within ourselves. The monster within ourselves. So we have to start at, the, at a different place. And I believe it means starting with God. John Piper, in a sermon on envy, concluded that envy is basically a lack of faith. It's a faith issue. So, we need to start by remembering God, specifically by fearing God. Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18 says this, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. It's an amazing promise. And there's something really interesting that we can't see in English going on here in verse 17. You see, the word envy and the word zealous in Hebrew are the exact same word. And here's what the translation notes from the Net Bible say. The verb means to be jealous to be zealous. It describes passionate intensity for something. In English, if the object is illegitimate, it is called envy. If it is correct, it is called zeal. Here's the warning. Here the warning is not to envy the sinners. The second colon could use the verb in the positive sense to mean, but rather let your passion burn for fear of the Lord. Another commentator put it this way, the remedy for envying sinners is to look up, fear of the Lord, and to look ahead, the future. When we are zealous for God, when we fear Him, when we place Him first, we remember who He is and that He's worth so much more than all of the stuff or the success or the whatever of others, 
our attitude changes. Because we realize that our hope isn't in Him, our future, or in them, our future, our hope is in Him. And what He offers us, which is life. John Piper points to Psalm 37 as a remedy for envy. If you turn with me, we're going to look at the first several verses here. Psalm 37, verses 1 to 7. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. Like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take the light in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and, pa- and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when, the, when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. David says, don't envy the wicked. I like the fact that David says this because sometimes he does. And it makes me realize that we're all human and that God uses people that are just as messed up as I am. Don't envy the wicked. Why? Because their success is temporary, we see in verse 3. Right? Or, sorry, in verse, uh, verse 2. They're like grass, like green plants that are going to go away. There's basically four things that we see in these first seven verses. It's interesting when you look at Hebrew poetry and you see sets of contrasts, right? Don't envy. Instead, what are we supposed to do? Trust God. Take delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before God. Trust, delight, commit, be still. These things are the antidotes, according to David, for being envy of the evil person. And it's very interesting because in the contemporary world, when we think about the evils of envy, we're tempted to take the Oprah route, right? And the Oprah route is self-improvement. How do I make myself better? How do I not worry about that person? Instead, focus on me and don't worry about them. And it sounds good, but it never gets us far enough because we can never improve ourselves enough. There's always going to be somebody better, right? It ultimately fails because the monster of envy is in us. So when we focus our energies on God, when we fear Him, delight in Him, commit to Him, when we put God first, our perspective changes because we are focusing on the center and we are zealous for Him. All of that envy, remember the same word, goes for our zealous regard for Him. Second, we need to remember, first we fear God, second we remember His grace. You see, sometimes, even though we put God first, we're going to still be tempted with envy. Why? Because we're human and we're broken And we are fallen people. We still stumble like Elijah. He defeats the prophets of Baal and he's on the run from Ahab. And he's like, I'm the only one left. What just happened? And he envies 
the security of others. But why do we fear God? Sometimes we're tempted to think of it as just because he's the greatest. And that's true, but that's not enough. I believe that above all, we fear God, we worship God because God is good. I pay a significant amount of attention to religious news and, and thoughts on the web and on blogs. And one of the things that I see, one of the biggest complaints I find about Christianity and one of the most forceful in many ways, I think, is that Christians are mean. And that God is mean. And why would I want to be a part of something that is just so mean-spirited? If that's the kind of God you worship, I don't want any part of it. And even the people who claim they don't even believe in God, what they really are saying is not so much about logical arguments and reason. It's about that kind of God, frankly, I want no part of. And to be perfectly honest, we deserve at least some of the criticism because we show ourselves to be mean. We get condescending, sometimes downright hateful, and it's prideful because we look down our noses at people who do not believe. But God doesn't deserve that. And a lot of the vitriol that I hear directed at God has to do with the way that Christians talk about God. And yes, there are difficult passages in the Bible that we have to get our heads around and say, okay, I'm not quite sure what to do with. But we need to remember that both in our own lives and the God that we show others, that above all, God is gracious to us. He is worthy of our love and our honor and our respect And he is worthy of our very lives because we see in him that he always shows grace toward us. Always. I'm a firm believer that God's holiness and grace are not things we hold in tension. It is in fact in and through God's grace we see just how holy God is. Because I couldn't be that graceful. Holiness is the set-apartness of God. And none of us could be what he is. You see, the scriptures are God's story. And I feel like I say this all the time, but I think it's so important. The story of God's creation, our rebellion, the story of his relentless pursuit of us while we're still in rebellion. And it's about the ultimate restoration of everything. The story of scripture is the story of grace extended to sinners. And we see this in the Old Testament clearly because God chooses a people and they keep messing up. And God continues to pursue, not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over again. That is grace. That is the God we serve. That is the God we love. As one person I heard this last week said, grace never runs out. There's more of where that came from. Envy, to put it in the economic terms of Brooks at the beginning, is, comes from scarcity thinking, right? I don't have enough. I've got to get more. But when we put God first, when we fear him, we realize this very freeing truth that grace never runs out. 
And it's extended toward us. And it means that I don't have to envy anyone or anything because God is extending his grace toward me. And even seemingly bad things can be full of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks about his thorn in the flesh. And he says that it is a means of keeping him from conceit or pride. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grace opposes envy. The true remedy for envy is to put God first and remember his grace. And we do this most clearly when, like Paul, we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, is a passage we're all familiar with. We are told to put on the mind of Christ. To put it on in our relationships with one another. That we are to look like Jesus. And I believe this is how we most clearly put God first. We see it in a couple of ways. First, humility. Jesus Christ is God and he becomes one of us. Verse 6, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to its own advantage. Jesus suffered on our behalf. The secret side of envy is that it is the opposite of humility, right? Because what we really want is to be in a position where others envy us. It is in many ways the flip side of pride. Tails to its heads. But when we're truly humble, and I don't mean fake humble, putting on spiritual airs, but truly humble, envy doesn't have a hold on us. Because we're willing to take the low positions, to be content with what we have, and to strive after what God wants. We're following God's plan for us. And guess what? There's a better reward than all of the stuff that we're envying anyway. In Matthew 5, we read the Beatitudes. You want to fight envy? You want a real reward? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, starting with verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know what you're thinking, but I think that's a better reward than any of the things that I'm envious about. That kind of humility implies the other part of Philippians 2, and with this we close. Jesus' humility leads to self-sacrifice. And it's really amazing because envy is all about I want, right? But in verse 8, Jesus humbles himself to the point of taking our place on the cross. 
And in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than he, gives, he lays down his life for his friends. That's the opposite of envy. That's an attitude of humility that's not simply out of duty. This is the kind of humility that goes to the core of who we are. It is the love of Christ deep at work within us. This is recognizing that though the monster is within us all, God always gives a way forward to live without envy in His Spirit. When we are willing to be self-sacrificing, something changes. So as we close, take inventory. Not of what you have, not of what you want, but what on others around you need. How can you help? How can you live out that attitude, that mind of Christ, that humble self-sacrificing? The mind of Christ, how do we live that out for our neighbors? Start there. It's really practical. You don't want to envy? Start doing for others. Envy will dry up and you will be transformed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for your admonition to us to remove envy. I pray that you would help us to do that by focusing on you and your grace, that we would live out lives of Christ-like obedience. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.